Our lesson this week and in the past few weeks have dealt with the Holy Spirit, which comes under the subject of pneumatology and systematic theology. And on our last broadcast, we began the introductory remarks that dealt with the Spirit-filled life. On this broadcast, we continue with these verses in the Bible that teach the doctrine of the Spirit-filled believer. And, of course, we've all noticed how everyone needs the filling of the Holy Spirit. Every church member needs to be Spirit-filled. And as a matter of fact, one of the qualifications for deacons in Acts chapter 6 was that they be filled with the Holy Ghost. Uh, the modern humbly bubbly blubber gobble hostile shantai-untai-bow-tie movement, of course, is a movement back to Rome. All roads lead to Rome. And it has nothing to do with the filling of the Spirit, but has to do with the possession of an unclean spirit. The Holy Spirit of God who wrote the Bible does not lead a man to deny it. The Holy Spirit of God who wrote the Bible, preserved the Bible, does not lead Christians to get together on the grounds of denying what the Holy Spirit said. So in this series of lessons and our studies in the Spirit-filled life of the believer, we are never taking time out to fool with the contemporary nonsense being carried on by so-called charismatic groups who profess that their great accomplishment has been a renewal of the Spirit by getting together with other Christians who deny what the Holy Spirit said. Well, the Holy Spirit has spoken in the 66 books. We are not interested in the opinions of people who profess to know him. After all, if you know him, you don't contradict what he said. For example, we read in our Bible in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that the nation of Israel and Jewish proselytes are to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. We know if any man teaches this baptism, Acts 2, 38, is for the unsaved Gentile, but that man is a man who denies the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit and the words of the Holy Spirit and the book of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the words of the Holy Spirit. It is sure folly and the utmost nonsense to suppose a man knows anything about the Holy Spirit simply because he's able to get along with a bunch of Christians who do not accept the Bible as authoritative. The modern so-called charismatic movement is a movement based primarily on experience instead of the Bible and it is a humanistic, liberalistic movement in that it assumes that human emotions and human experience are superior to the doctrinal content of the everlasting word. The words of the Lord are forever settled in heaven. David said, Christ says, Heaven earth shall pass away, but my word shall not. God has magnified his word above his name, and these silly little charismatics think that their experience is above the name of God. There's only one thing that's ever magnified above the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the word of God. Psalm 138, verse 2. And if any man puts his experience above that book, then we know that man knows absolutely nothing about the one who wrote that book and preserved that book, the Holy Ghost himself. No prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Therefore, the one who wrote that book and inspired that book and preserved that book is very clear in the matter that that book is exalted above the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, any man who thinks his experience, or his renewal, or his ecumenical love for the brethren, or his unity in Christ, is superior to the written words of God, that man has denied the third person of the Godhead publicly and privately in his own life. And if he manifests any spirit, it is certainly not the blessed third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who came to testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. One must never forget, as the Antichrist Church heads up and the United Nations shape up on the Antichrist and the Ten Federated Kingdom at Rome, the uh, left wing of fundamentalism, that is the feeling deeper experience spiritual renewal people, 
will seek to amalgamate all Christians under one heading other than the authority of the Word of God. As long as a Christian is under the authority of the Word of God, you cannot swallow him up in the Antichrist church. But if you can ever get him to judge the Word of God by his experience, or judge the Word of God by his renewal or his love for the brethren, you can pull anything off on the sucker. And like Barnum said, there's one born every minute. Now the world expects believers to be spirit-filled. They do not expect them to blabber and flabber and blabber, blibber, blabber. They don't expect that at all. And of course, if that would save souls, the office would be very anxious to hobble, gobble, blibber, blabber, and blubber, blubber. But if you will check the records, you will find that the greatest soul winning in churches in America do not blibber, blabber, hobble, gobble, blubber, blubber. As a matter of fact, there isn't one church in America that runs over 4,000 Sunday school that sees people walk the aisles every Sunday and get baptized, whoever fools with hobble-gobble, blubber-blubber, blibbity-blabble, hobble-gobble. The hobble-gobble, blubber-blabber, blibber-blabber-blubber-blubbers are for the people who do not win souls to Christ, do not have results, and are putting on a show. A charismatic church building costing several million dollars is kind of like setting up Cape Canaveral to shoot off fireworks. Our Christian walk now is twofold, Godward and outward to our fellow man. The world expects every Christian to be almost perfect. Of course, it is wrong for them to expect this, but they do. The blind man, or rather the lame man at the temple in Acts chapter 3, looked at Peter and John, expecting to receive something of them. And Simon Peter said to him, The silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, they can expect something from a child of God. Strangely enough, if you live the life you should live for God, the world will call you a fanatic. And if you don't live the life you should live for God, they'll call you a hypocrite. You can't please the world. Yet even though this is so, the Christian is under obligation to be filled with the Spirit because of the mandatory commandment in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. To live up to the world's imaginary standard, every believer desperately needs the filling of the Holy Spirit. We cannot be effective witnesses if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, and the most ineffective witnesses the church has today are the so-called charismatics. They may do a lot of things. There's one thing they never do. They never lead anybody with saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Occasionally, a person will get in one of their churches where the preacher may preach the gospel, and it may happen accidentally. But personal soul winning, personal visitation, door-to-door, house-to-house visitation to lead people to Christ is not the work of the modern ecumenical charismatic hobble-gobble, hubbly-gobble, blabber-blabber, flabber-blabber. And when you talk this way, people say, well, now you've committed the unpardonable sin. I could care less what you think about what I've committed or not committed. And as far as I'm concerned, after a careful study of the Word of God and a prayerful study of the Word of God, uh, your opinion about what I think about the matter is of less importance to me than if you weren't even listening to the broadcast. Uh, Those of us who spent uh, 20, 25, 30 years in the ministry, after a while we know the fakers when we see them. And the reason why no charismatic has ever been an effective personal witness to win people to Jesus Christ is because the spirit he is filled with is not the Holy Spirit. Either the work of the Lord and the energy of the flesh can only lead to disappointment and failure. Spirit-filled believers living the crucified life in relation to the world are an effective means in the Lord's hands to convict and convince sinners. You never saw an unsaved man in your life that was convicted of his rejection of Christ by hearing a man blabber in a foreign language. You never heard it in all your life. As a matter of fact, the only people who ever got on a conviction act chapter 2 of the people talking foreign languages were people who understood the foreign languages and understood every word that was being said. 
There isn't a case in the record in either testament where anybody was brought under conviction by hearing a tongue they didn't understand. There isn't one case. That's not the case of Acts 2, where all those present understood. It's not the case of Acts 10, where those present understood. It's not the case of Acts chapter 19, where those in the synagogue mentioned in the context understood. There isn't one case in either testament where any man was ever brought to conviction and a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by hearing a man haberty gibberty blabber blabber flabber gabble in a tongue he didn't understand. And if this could do it, I'm sure all of us would spend our life hobble gobbling, blibber blabbering, hubber blubbering the rest of our life in order to get these people saved. Now, what are the conditions for the filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, they vary from time to time, coming to the book of Acts, which is a progressive book of doctrine. But finally, if it was reduced to one thing, we could say it is the man who asks. In Acts 2.38, since the Holy Spirit had not come initially at Pentecost, and since the Holy Spirit came to Israel before he came to the Gentiles, and since the Holy Spirit was promised to come to Israel before he came to the Gentiles, the initial coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38 is upon Jews only and Jewish proselytes. There has never been a time in the history of the church in the book of Acts, in Acts 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, where the Holy Spirit ever came initially again upon anybody. The next time he came in Acts chapter 10, he came upon Gentiles, and that was the second time. The initial time was Acts 2.38. And in Acts 2.38, there are no unsaved Gentiles present, and all you have present are unsaved Jews and unsaved Jewish proselytes. Read especially verse 14, verse 22, and verse 37, and verse 36. Now, instead of getting mad at me because you've been misled and blew your money on a flat joint and found out it was Tap City, why don't you just read the passages? I trust I'm dealing with a mature audience. I trust I'm talking to people who can read. And if you can't, you can get Braille. And if you can't get that, you can get the messages on cassette or tape. And I'll give you $100,000 for every unsaved Gentile you can find in Acts 2.38 who isn't a Jewish proselyte to Orthodox Judaism. The idea of teaching people the Christian plan of salvation, Acts 2.38, what a monstrous perversion. What an ungodly, unholy mess. Why, the word Christian doesn't occur in your Bible, Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Is there anybody I'm talking to that doesn't know that? I know they don't know it out of Abilene, but out of Abilene they don't know much of anything, do they? Let me ask you this. Does anybody listen to my voice right now that doesn't know the word Christian that you people use so glibly and talk about so much? Is there anybody in the audience that doesn't know the word Christian occurs for the first time in the Bible in Acts 11.26? Is anybody on the theological seminar of the air so foolish and gullible to think there are any Christians in Acts chapter 2? Every person in Acts chapter 2 doing the preaching and doing the hearing is an orthodox, pork-abstaining, Sabbath-worshipping, temple-attending, bearded, circumcised Jew or proselyte to Orthodox Old Testament Judaism. That can be proved in court. And if you don't believe it, call the hand. Now, this is the call to America today. We have what we call Christian criminals. These elders and Bible teachers and people that do everything behind closed doors under the table are always anxious to call for a sudden public debate at your expense with their congregation, which is always just as screwed up as they are. And these people who talk the most about doing things in the open, they're the most close-handed people you ever saw when it comes to proving fact. 
For example, if you held them to Acts 2.38, you know what they'd do? They'd run to Mark 16.16. 16. There isn't a case in record when a Campbellite in the United States could ever face any verse of Scripture longer than five minutes. Having you got him in Mark 16.16, 16, you'd run to 1 Peter 3.21. And if you put him down in 1 Peter 3.21, you'd find him in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. And if you put him down there, you'd find him over there in Acts chapter 22. You rent him out of there, he'd be in Romans 6. And you rent him out of there, he'd be Acts 2.38, talking like he, just, like he thought he had brains in his head instead of bats. If you doubt what I'm saying, read the passage. The initial coming of the Holy Ghost was given to the nation of Israel and Judas proselytes in Acts 2, verse 38. And the condition for receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38 was for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And that's why that formula has never been used since anywhere in the history of the world. Because of the initial coming of the Holy Spirit, and not once again in your Bible is anybody ever again baptized for the remission of sins in order to get the Holy Ghost. There isn't one case in the rest of the Bible. Now, to get the Holy Spirit, you have to be a son of God. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God has set forth the Spirit of the Son into your hearts. Therefore, there's no such thing as a universal fatherhood of God, where all men are made in the image of God and have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is given to his sons. And the Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 12, For as many as received him, that they gave power to become the sons of God. Because you are sons, Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, God has set forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts. Again, if a man wants the Holy Spirit, he's to ask. In John 7, 37, we read, If any man thirst, let him come and take the water of life freely, Isaiah 44, 3, and also Isaiah 55. He's to come and ask in faith. See Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Ever since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given by faith. And in Galatians chapter 3, 13, 14, you find that no Gentile in Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, Oregon, Washington, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, ever once in their life, ever received the Holy Spirit by being baptized according to Acts 2.38. The Holy Spirit came into you by faith, Galatians 3.13 and 14, and the promise of the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles by faith, not by water baptism. We read in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, the Holy Spirit is given to those who ask him, also in Acts 4.31. The thing for us to do is ask and receive. We talk about receiving the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about the filling of the Spirit. A man received the Holy Spirit when he is saved. We're talking about the secret of being filled with the Spirit. The secret of being filled with the Holy Spirit is surrender, surrendering our wills, bodies, possessions, every aspect of our lives to his control, and praying and ask God to fill us with the Holy Ghost. And this is what we're to do. We're to pray and ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit, and as we pray and ask God for the filling of the Holy Spirit, we are to yield to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. As Paul said, I am praying the, that Christ might be formed in you. The illustration is very simple if a person will take time out to consider it. Here's a glass-laden jar or a, a fruit canning jar, a jar for canning fruit. You put it under the faucet. You turn the water in it, put a tablespoon of water in that thing, and seal it up. All of water that's water is in that water that's in that jar. But if you heat that jar, that water will turn to steam and fill that jar. Sealed. 
You don't have to put any more in. But you're not filled just because the Holy Spirit is in you. You're sealed. The Holy Spirit came to you, you got saved. The Lord put on the lid and screwed the thing down so tight. Grandma couldn't get it open. But you're not filled unless that water in there, picture the water of life, the Holy Spirit, fills the vessel and causes rivers of living waters to come out of the inside of that man. Therefore, all this attempt to pray for God to reach outside and touch your flesh, which he has never done, and for him to pour out his Spirit upon all flesh, which he will not do till the millennium and did not do at Pentecost, caught you again, you old Bible-rejecting Christian. All that work there is nonsense. The Holy Spirit is in you if you're saved, but he's not necessarily through you unless your vessel is yielded to him. Now, what are the results of being filled with the Spirit? Well, the first result of being filled with the Spirit is the power to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, and especially in this Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's power to speak up and witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't mean for tongues. The first characteristic of the Spirit-filled witness is he'll open his mouth and testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. In conjunction with the promise to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord Jesus Christ said, And ye shall be witnesses of me. Therefore, when you find any man wasting his time witnessing about tongues or witnessing about an experience or witnessing about an ecumenical movement, you're dealing with a man who has never been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit-filled Christian bears witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is isn't all. The filling of the Holy Spirit enables the Christian, the child of God, to speak the Word of God boldly. Notice this in Acts chapter 4. And notice in Acts chapter 4, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, nobody talks with unknown tongues, tongues, or other tongues. They speak the Word of God boldly. And when you find charismatics who will not open their mouth about Christ until a man makes a profession of faith, or until they see you witnessing to somebody else, you're dealing with immature babies who nothing know nothing about the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives at all. The power of the Holy Spirit will enable a man to stand on the street corner and give the plan of salvation. The power of the Holy Spirit will enable a man to stand up in Congress and quote John 3.16. The power of the Holy Spirit can lead a man to stand up to an atheist or an agnostic or a drunk or a Satanist or a pornographer or a fornicator and put a thing in his face and tell him he's going to hell. And you people pretend to power the power of the Holy Spirit, most of you couldn't do it, so quit putting on airs. Stay in the league you belong. You're not in the pony league yet. Stay out of the traffic before you get hit. If you can't put your thing in the face of an unsaved man and tell him off like Christ told him off in Matthew chapter 23, and like Paul told him off in Galatians 4 and 5, and like Jeremiah told him off in Jeremiah 23, and like Micaiah told them off over there in 1 Kings chapter 28, don't you talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, you little girl scout. You stay back there with the campfire girls and the brownies and let Lady Esther lead you around on a leash like a pet poodle, okay? That isn't all. The Spirit-filled man has power to live the victorious life. Notice Acts chapter 20, verse 22 to 24. Glory will certainly be piled up in the Lord. The Lord will get great glory from the Spirit's ministry. John 16, 14. And John 15, verse 1 to 5. The Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. The result of the Spirit's real life will be a Christian will have joy. He'll enjoy the Bible. He'll enjoy salvation. He'll enjoy heaven. He'll enjoy God. 
A Christian will have love. He'll love God. Not just tolerate him, love him. He'll love God's word. Not just read it, he'll devour it. He'll do his meditation day and night. He will esteem it more than the words of the, the words of it more than his necessary food, like Job said. He'll rejoice at it as one that findeth great spoil, like David said. The Holy Spirit quickens the intellect, affections, conscience. It quickens the personality. It's the Holy Spirit that makes the sinner over after he's saved, makes him a new new man, changes his face, changes his fortune, fixes him up, equips him for service. The filling of the Holy Spirit is the secret of abiding in God's love, obeying God, and trusting in what God said. It's the Holy Spirit that leads a man to have a God-honoring trust in the Word of God. And when your college professor tells you it should have read this and should have read that, and an unfortunate translation is this and a better rendering is this, you're dealing with a professor of religion and a Bible teacher who knows absolutely nothing about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to come to conclusions, conclusions about these matters. First of all, we're not reservoirs, but channels. We must overflow. Blessings must pour out. It is not enough for us to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and have the blessed Holy Spirit indwelling our bodies, healing us the day of redemption, the earnest of our inheritance, although this is so. Although it is so that our bodies are not our own, they're brought with the price, and our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, there should be an overflowing coming out of us that deals with other people and guides other people to God and leads them to God and shows them God and convinces them we have something they need. Conversion first, then filling, then overflowing. And this is beautifully pictured in the Bible and the working of the Holy Spirit in four passages to which I'm going to call your attention. First of all, the Holy Spirit is likened to an overflowing spring, John 4:14. 4, then an overflowing fountain, John 7, verse 37 to 39. Then an abundance of sap in a tree that brings forth fruit, Romans 8, verse 11. And then as overflowing waters, Ephesians 5, verse 18. Now I'll give these similitudes to you again, and uh, you can put them down. John 4, 14. John 7, verse 37 to 39. Romans 8, 11. Ephesians 5, 18. Now the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible is likened to water. And if you know anything about the work of water, you have some idea about the work of the Holy Spirit. In the first place, you will notice that water is the first essential man needs outside of air itself. It is the breath of man that gives him life, and even this breath is called spirit. We read in Genesis chapter 2 that God breathed in Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. As the body without the spirit is dead, James says. So the first thing a man needs for physical life is air, intake, exhale, inhale, exhale. The second thing a man needs to stay alive is water. That's the second thing. The body is 85% water. Any man can live longer without food than he can without water. The similitude there is appropriate and very, very graphic. What an unsaved man needs before he needs bread is the Holy Spirit. This is why Christ said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Take no thought for the morrow, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient for the day is evil thereof. The first thing a man needs is the Holy Spirit of God in his body. 
without that he's dead in trespass and sin, because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now that's the riot act. That's how it goes. Now you may object to that. You may find fault with that. It's a free country. You may brilliantly object and postulate any number of reasons or apologies or alibis why in your case such and such a thing is not true. It could matter less. You'll die in your sins. The first thing you need after air is the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says the plowing of the wicked is sin, because when an unsaved man makes a legitimate living, every time he goes down the road, he plows further away from God than when he started. You wouldn't think the legitimate work would be a sin, but the Bible said the plowing of the wicked is sin. Legitimate work. Plowing is legitimate work. It isn't bootlegging or putting on pornographic X-rated adult movies. Plowing is legitimate work. Legitimate work will send you to hell. You don't like that, do you? You know why you don't? You're counting on your work to save you. Some of you rascals think because you raised the family and paid your debts, you got an entree into heaven and a free passport. You better have another thing coming. Christ said, Take no thought what you shall eat or what you shall drink. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek you first. The first thing a man needs is water. And water is a type of the Holy Spirit. Water is a cleansing agent. Christ said, Now you are clean through the word that I have spoken to you. The Holy Spirit has said to clean or sanctify the believer in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That isn't all about water. Water is not only a cleansing or purifying agent, but water is one of the most, one of the most terrible powers in the world for destruction known to man. If you want to find out about that, read about tidal waves, about the Johnstown flood. Read about the tidal waves that came from Krakatoa that went off. Tidal waves 100 feet in the air, traveling uh, at uh, 200 miles an hour across the water. There are very few things in this world outside of fire itself that is more destructive than running water. And when water really gets going like it did in the days of Noah, it is quite possible for it to take up granite boulders weighing 300 times much as a locomotive and move them 2,000 miles. The Holy Spirit is power. The Holy Spirit is purification, sanctification, cleansing. And above all, the Holy Spirit is necessary for spiritual life. There is no such thing as spiritual life without the Holy Spirit, and there's no such thing as a Christian living for the Lord without a daily refilling of the Holy Spirit. As one of the old colored brethren down the south said one time, when one of the brethren was pray, pray and fill me with the Spirit, fill me with the Spirit, he said, Don't do it, Lord, he leaks. Well, I'm sure all of us have holes on where sometime a puncture is made and we lose a little bit of a voltage and the power and the battery runs down. But what we need is a constant refilling, a recharging of our batteries daily at the Word of God and at the altar of prayer. Now we talk here about the Spirit-filled life on this broadcast and the previous broadcast. On our next broadcast, broadcast number 52, we'll take up a detailed discussion of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. This lesson will also run uh, two lessons, two periods of 30 minutes each, and we trust and hope that you can join us then. There uh, probably has been, hasn't been any uh, subject in the Bible more twisted and perverted anywhere in the world uh, than the teaching of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which has been taken out of Acts chapter 2 and stuck into 1 Corinthians 14 by the various sects and cults, and misappropriated to the point where this day people actually think if you don't feel something or do something, you don't have the baptism of the Holy Ghost. 
And we'll talk about this more on the next lesson on the next broadcast. We trust you'll check your local paper or station on for the time of this broadcast and be with us then. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you in his word.